0: Hey everyone, we had a few questions come up on the topic of baptism, especially after Joe B. talk, his session that he presented at the family conference a few weeks ago. And so Ubi and I were able to sit down with Joe B. and talk with him to answer your questions, but when I tried to type up his responses, um, the document ended up being pretty long, and I wasn't sure if anyone would actually read it all. Uh, so instead, we're going to share Joe Biatchin's responses in this podcast. so you can skip ahead to find the question that you're really interested in, or you can listen straight through. But before we get to your specific questions, I just want to set up the conversation by making a few points and by resummarizing Joe Biatchin's teaching on baptism that he shared with us at the conference. The first thing I want to stress to you is that all of your questions about baptism in general re-baptism and infant baptism really do have answers because the church has been baptizing and specifically baptizing babies for 2,000 years. And so you may not be totally satisfied with my answers or with Joe Biatchin's answers or with any one individual's answers to your specific questions. But I wanna encourage you to keep on exploring Because this is a topic that has been written on and discussed and debated for 2,000 years. And when you look at the historical evidence, it is undeniable that on the basis of scripture and the apostles' teaching in the early church, for over 2,000 years, the majority of Christians all around the world have baptized babies. So Irenaeus, who was the disciple of Polycarp, who was directly discipled by the Apostle John, affirmed infant baptism in the 100s AD. Origen in the 200s AD, affirmed infant baptism. Gregory of Nyssa, another great saint from the 300s AD, affirmed infant baptism. Augustine, the great African bishop and theologian in the 400s AD, affirmed infant baptism. So what I'm saying here is that this is a very early practice in the life of the church. And it continued on, After the Reformation, too, the Reformation was a moment when, especially in Western Christianity, certain voices wanted to justify church practices by Scripture. And this movement was led initially by Martin Luther, a great Protestant reformer, and he affirmed infant baptism on the basis of Scripture. Another great leader in the Protestant Reformation was John Calvin, who also affirmed infant baptism. As you continue on in history, George Whitfield, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, these are all early Methodist preachers, especially influential in America, in the colonies in the 1700s, they affirmed infant baptism. Jonathan Edwards, who sparked uh, the great awakening in early American history, you may have heard about him. He was a famous Puritan preacher. He affirmed infant baptism. When we look at the 20th century too, John Stott, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, folks you may have heard about uh, from recent history, they all affirmed infant baptism. So what's my point here? My point is, again, the majority of Christians all around the world for the 2,000-year history of the church have looked into Scripture and affirmed the practice of infant baptism. But that fact in and of itself doesn't mean that the practice of infant baptism is right. The practice of infant baptism is only right if it accords with and obeys the teaching of the Holy Bible. And that's what our church, the Church of South India, as a Reformed church, believes. It holds to the three classical statements of faith from the Protestant Reformation, what's called the three solas. Scripture alone is our authority, salvation by faith alone, not works, and salvation by grace alone, not merits. What scripture alone particularly means is that all of our traditions and creeds and church practices, they're good. They're needed to help provide order and clarity to our worship and life together, but all of them have to continually be held to account before Scripture. All of our traditions and creeds and church practices have to be justified by Scripture. They can't contradict what is taught in Scripture because it's in scripture that the Holy Spirit working through the apostles and the prophets and the church fathers speaks to us. It's in scripture that the Holy Spirit hands down to us the gospel message so that we can live in it now and we can never depart from that. So this is what I'm trying to say. Let me just be clear again. For the majority of the life of the church many men and women of faith have looked into scripture and studied scripture and on the basis of scripture and its teaching affirmed infant baptism as right and proper. So maybe you won't like my answers or Joe B. answers to your questions, but don't assume then that there is no good answer. Keep pressing in, keep learning, keep studying, keep talking about this because I promise you All of these questions we received from you on this topic are questions that have been asked and answered for 2000 years. One final note before we get into a summary of the teaching of baptism, Uh, the CSI position on baptism is a position our church has reached based on our interpretation of the Bible. It's not an assertion of power. It's not us telling you what we want you to do. It's what we believe God teaches us, and we are trying to be obedient to God's teaching. So the important question for you as you listen to these answers is not whether you personally like our teaching on baptism. Don't let your feelings be the guide here. The, the important question here is, is this teaching true or is it false? Because if it's true, then the teaching on baptism is a reality that you have to deal with. You may not like that two plus two equals four, but you have to deal with it. You may not like who the president of the United States is, or the mayor of your town. But it's a reality, whether you like it or not. And so that's the important question as you listen to these answers. Is this teaching on baptism what the Bible teaches us? And if in good conscience, you don't think it is, then let's continue to talk about it. Because Jesus promises us that the Holy Spirit is within our community because we are his temple. And that the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us into all truth. But let's have that conversation, not on the basis of feelings, but on the basis of what scripture says. So Joe Biopchin, uh actually provided his set of notes on baptism, which we have shared with you guys, and we'll share it again with you. It's an excellent and comprehensive resource. It has tons of scripture references from the Old Testament to the New Testament, justifying all, uh, how all of this works together, how the teaching makes sense. So that resource has all the scriptural references. I'm not going to go back to that here right now. I'm just going to give you the summary. The primary takeaway from that session on baptism is that baptism is an act of grace. Baptism is not primarily about you or me publicly declaring our allegiance to King Jesus. A lot of your questions assume that. That baptism is really about my public declaration that I'm a Christian. That's part of baptism, sure. Declaration of our allegiance is part of baptism. But biblically, that's not the primary focus. The primary focus of baptism is God's grace. He is the primary actor, not us. He washes us. We are passive. We are just washed. He speaks a word over us, declaring us to be his sons and daughters, God declares in baptism that we are in Jesus Christ and that therefore, because we are in Jesus Christ, we are adopted into God's family. Adoption is the primary metaphor here. We are united to Jesus. We are clothed with Jesus. We are washed with Jesus's blood. We die in Christ and we rise to his new life. We move from the old world under death into the new world of life. In the same way, God's spirit hovered over the waters in Genesis 1 and called the earth out of the water. If you reread Genesis 1, you see that. In the same way, Noah and his family on the ark in Genesis passed safely through the water from the world that was judged into the new world of the rainbow. In the same way, Moses and the Israelites crossed the Red Sea from the world of slavery into the world of freedom. These are all prefiguring. These are all foreshadowing what is going to happen to us in our baptism. We cross from the old world in rebellion to God into the new world, obedient to God. And salvation is related to baptism, but they're not the same thing. Baptism and salvation are not the same thing. Salvation is the fact of our deliverance from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Salvation is the fact that Jesus Christ has conquered death, sin, and the devil. Salvation is the fact of our rescue from God's coming wrath. And I know that God's wrath is a concept that is hard to understand, and hopefully we can unpack that in the future, but that's part of salvation. We are rescued from God's just punishment of evil that is ruining and spoiling his creation. And in the New Testament, salvation has three dimensions or aspects. There's the past aspect of salvation, Christ's once for all death on the cross, his conquest of hell, his resurrection on the third day by which sin is forgiven and new life is made freely available. That's the past aspect of salvation, the first aspect. Then there's the second aspect of salvation, the present aspect of salvation, my continually day by day living into my Christ identity by putting to death sin and living totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. And then there's the future aspect of salvation. My glorification in the new creation when heaven and earth will be fully reunited and I will be transformed into something beautiful and glorious when I see Jesus face to face. So for myself, I know when I'm asked, are you saved? I know, and I can reply, I am saved. I am being saved and I will be saved past, present, future, justification, sanctification, glorification. These are all aspects of salvation. And at the moment of our baptism, God speaks to me at the moment of my baptism, God speaks to me, his promises of salvation, and he incorporates me as a son into his family, the family that inherits all of those promises. In baptism, God tells me that Jesus's story is now my story. So baptism is related to salvation, but they're not the same thing. Bi-baptism tells me that I'm an heir of salvation, that I'm adopted into God's family. But every day, I have to still live according to my new identity as a member of God's family. So think about this through, through the metaphor of adoption. If an adoption works, a child will successfully integrate her identity with that of her adoptive parents. But adoptions can fail, and that's tragic. And the New Testament repeatedly warns us of the possibility of tragically falling away from the truth we first grasped, the truth we were first pressing into. So that's why the Gospel of John warns us to abide in Christ and to bear fruit or the Father will cut us off. The book of Hebrews and 1 Corinthians are filled with warnings of severe judgment upon those who were once part of God's family, but forsake that family. So now if we fall away, it's not like we were never adopted. The New Testament tells us if we fall away after first being members of God's family, our situation is actually worse than those who never believed. Because now we are going to be treated like rebellious sons and daughters, disobedient children, and will be judged accordingly. So don't think just because you're baptized, you're good, you're saved. That's, that's the end of the story. By your baptism, you're brought into the Christ family and you receive the many benefits and promises of that Christ family. But day by day, you have to appropriate to yourself Christ's identity and God's promises and remind yourself who you really are so that you don't forget and thereby fail to finish the race. But if an adopted child forsakes his family for some time, but then later on returns, what will a good adoptive parent do? Will they require the child to be readopted? No, they're already members of the family, and they always will be, even if they have turned their back on the family for some time. A good father will totally accept the child back, and there won't be a need for a readoption. So in the same way, if someone who is baptized forsakes their Christian faith, but then later returns to it or recommits to it in a new way or in a deeper way, do they need to be rebaptized? No, they're already members of the family. We just have to welcome them home. And in the same way, don't assume that because someone is not baptized that they are not saved. Jesus Christ alone saves. He is Savior and Lord of the world. But he saves not us, not the church, We, the church, his family, bear his promises of salvation. We witness to his salvation. We witness to the fact that he has told us that in baptism, we receive the forgiveness of sins, repentance, and the Holy Spirit. We witness to the fact that he has told us that in baptism, we are brought into his family, but we don't own his salvation. Jesus owns salvation and Jesus can give salvation to whoever he wishes by his own free gift. That's his divine, kingly right. So this is kind of the conclusion on the teaching of baptism. Baptism is related to salvation. Baptism includes within it many of the promises of salvation, but it's not the same thing as salvation. There are those who have not been baptized who Jesus, out of his own voluntary, free gift, will save. And don't assume because you are baptized that everything is good. You have to continue on in discipleship. There are those who have been baptized and brought into the family of God who will be disobedient and who will be rebellious and therefore who will be judged as even worse off than those who, believed in, who never believed. So that's the teaching on baptism. Now let's move to the questions. So the first question is, what is the CSI stance on burying or memorializing an unbaptized baby who has passed away. Now, every church has to make decisions on how it relates to or treats the unbaptized, especially at funerals. Now, remember what I just said, just because someone is not baptized does not mean that they are not saved. Salvation is the free gift of God. And so questions of final salvation are totally in the hands of God. We simply witness to what has been revealed to us, whether someone has been baptized or not baptized. But the church, to provide proper order, has to have rules in how it treats everyone in order to be fair. And so that's why Joe Yachin shared an example of a church, which I won't say the name of uh, here, but that church did bury an un- unbaptized baby, but they did not use their official church liturgy to memorialize as their way of signaling to the congregation that they are uncertain as to the final salvation of that unbaptized baby. For the CSI, we hold strongly to Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter seven, the children of believers are holy. So even if they are not baptized, Joe Biachin shared with us, with Abhi and myself in our private conversation, that there would be no problem with us burying or memorializing a baby of believers who has passed away without being baptized. That does not pose any kind of problem for us. Now, there are interesting questions that remain on the babies of unbelievers. What is their final status? That's not a topic scripture directly addresses, and there's debate on it. What we have to remember in the course of this entire conversation is that salvation is the free gift of God. It's his divine, royal privilege to save whoever he wants. He wants. And for myself, I trust a God who dies forgiving his enemies on the cross out of his great love and eagerness to save the world, to do the right thing, whatever that may be. So moving on to the second question. How can you baptize a baby when it's unaware of what's happening? Is baptism forced on a baby? Is confirmation forced on a child? So notice the assumptions behind these questions. For one, they assume that someone else who is at the age of 6 or 12 or 21 or 40 or 80 when they get baptized is aware of what is happening. But that's not really true, not in the full sense. Every baptism no matter what age you are at when you get baptized, has an element of mystery, has an element that is beyond our comprehension because it's an encounter with the infinite God. God is taking hold of us in our baptism. So no matter what age you are when you get baptized, to some extent, you are unaware of what is happening. But let's go beyond that. These questions also assume that if you don't have a certain mental capacity or consciousness, you can't be baptized. So I would be tempted to ask, under those assumptions, would the church be wrong to baptize someone who is severely mentally handicapped, so, so handicapped that they can't understand fully what is happening to them, and thereby exclude them because they don't have a certain mental capacity from adoption into God's family? but let's leave that to the side too. If you believe that scripture teaches us that baptism is about God's grace, that the primary actor in baptism is not us, but is God, and that adoption is a good metaphor for what happens in, baptize, in baptism, then this question, how can you baptize a baby when it's unaware of what is happening, doesn't really bother you anymore. Because then it's like asking, how can you adopt a baby when it's unaware of what is happening. The focus is not on the baby. The focus is on the love and mercy of the adoptive parents. The focus is on the love and mercy of the father to take someone from enmity into his family. Now we pray that the baby will grow into his or her adoption. And we pray that the baby will accept the adoptive parents and love them and respect them. And in the same way, the church comes around the baby as a community and prays for and raises the child into full discipleship and love and affection for the father by the merits of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the possibility of rejection, the possibility of the child failing to do that, of failing to love uh, his new family or her new family is real. That's why discipleship is so urgent. The possibility of falling away is not a fake possibility. It's a tragic reality we have to guard against. And the way we guard against it is total dependence on the Holy Spirit and total dependence on the grace of God. So when you ask, how can you force a baby to be baptized? It's like asking, how can you force a baby to be born Indian and not Chinese? The baby didn't get to choose. The baby is just born the way it's born. How can you force a baby to be a boy or a girl? The baby didn't get to choose. The baby's choosing is is not the point. The point is the gift of God. The point is the grace of God. He appoints which families we're born into, whether we are born Indian or Chinese, whether we are born boys or girls. And he appoints the characteristics of those families, and even who they worship, whether they are Christian believing families or whether they're non-Christian, non-believing families. None of us are born neutral with respect to God. And that's a hard teaching. I get it. That's hard to accept because it doesn't seem fair. We're either born into families that are friends of God, or we are born into families that are away from God. So it lends us to this question, why are some born to Christian families and others not? It doesn't seem fair, and it's not fair. It's only fair if those of us who are given the gift and blessing of being born and raised in Christian homes use our gifts and blessings to bless and evangelize and save those who are not. That's the whole point here. God works, God presents himself Not to every individual directly, but person to person through other people. That's the point of Romans chapter 10, if you read that when Paul is talking about the importance of preaching. So anyway, not to get sidetracked into that, that's how I would respond to this question. And that's how Joe Biachin responded to this question too. How can you baptize a baby when it's unaware of what is happening? Is baptism forced on a baby? That's kind of the wrong way of looking at it because you're thinking about the question from the standpoint of the child's decision or the child's choice. But that's not what's going on in baptism. The focus is on God and his choice and his grace. So moving on to question number three, is it wrong to get baptized again? Why or why not? We kind of talked about this a little bit before, but if you're adopted and you leave your family, do you need to be adopted again if you come back? If you're adopted and you don't really love your family the way you want to, uh, the way you should, or you don't understand what it means to be a part of this adopted family, if later on you have a recognition about how you're supposed to behave in this family, when you come back or when you decide to act in a different way towards your family or towards your parents, do you need to be adopted again? No. If your parents are good they'll welcome you home and love you. And in the same way, if you were baptized as an infant, it doesn't matter if you remember it or not. You were adopted. God spoke promises over you. God washed you. God welcomed you into his family. So if you have problems with faith as you grow up, or you come to a breakthrough in faith later in life and you get really excited about Jesus, you love him more and you want to totally submit to him at the age of 18 in a way that you didn't know when you were 14 or age five, that is awesome. That's the fruit of what God has been doing in you ever since your baptism. You don't have to be baptized again because you don't have to be adopted again. You're coming into new realizations, new commitments, and that's great. But that's going to continue because your faith at the age of 28, God willing, is not going to be the same as your faith at the age of 18. Each time you come through a new breakthrough, you don't have to be adopted again. You don't have to be baptized again. You're You're just continually living into your baptism. Question four, if it's wrong to get baptized again, then what's a good public way of proclaiming faith? Obviously, in our church, the point of confirmation is to publicly declare and recognize that a baptized child has matured as a Christian and is willing to affirm their baptismal promises as their own. Confirmation is not a sacrament. Baptism is the sacrament. But confirmation is a church practice we have taken on as a way of allowing the community to publicly express to the 13-year-old or 14-year-old Christian child that we see you have matured and we believe we have discharged our duty to raise you in a Christian way and now it's your responsibility to take hold of these baptismal promises that were spoken over you and make them your own. Confirmation does not mean that Christian growth and Christian discipleship ends. It doesn't mean that everything is figured out at the age of 13. I'm 30 and I barely understand myself, let alone many of the things of the world or many of the things of the church or many of the things of Christianity. We were talking about this earlier, but your Christian faith at 20 is not the same as your Christian faith at five, but they're both Christian faith. My faith at age 30, if I continue in God's kindness, will hopefully not compare to my faith at age 60. You should expect that your faith will continually grow and be challenged. There will be seasons of dryness and seasons of harvest. And every Sunday we get to publicly proclaim our faith in the worship service when we declare the Nicene Creed and when we break bread together and by faith receive the body and blood of Jesus. These are all public proclamations of faith. But I think what the question is getting at is that for some people, they may experience radical disobedience at some time after their baptism. Uh, what, no matter what age they're baptized at, at age two or at age 20, there's the possibility of radically rebelling against God at some point after your baptism. And for those people, when they return to faith, when they return to Christianity, they don't need to be rebaptized, they're already sons and daughters. God does not take that adoption away, it's just that they have turned their back on their family. But our church even if we won't re-baptize them, can give them some kind of recognition for returning from their wandering. And we can give them space to celebrate their return and to celebrate their new love and submission to Jesus Christ. In other churches I know of, there are liturgies for that sort of rededication or return back to faith because many churches will not rebaptize again either. I'm not sure if CSI has a specific liturgy or worship service for that, but I promise you, knowing our utchins as I do now, if, if that's your story and you've had an experience of deep disobedience to God and you've already been baptized, but you want to celebrate and declare in the church your newfound rededication to God, talk to your utchin because they will be thrilled and they will be so excited to find a way to publicly celebrate that in the worship service with you if that's what you want. Question five, is the church too caught up in the rules of baptism? This is always a danger for any church. On the one hand, every community has a culture and it has rules. It has a way of doing things. It has people who bear authority for the sake of the community. And it has a way of dealing with disagreements and even coming to decisions. And decisions don't always make everyone happy. The church is the assembly or the called community of God and Jesus is our king and final authority. But in our practical life, we have to make decisions and we have to have rules. Who gets to be baptized? How do we baptize? Who gets to decide who gets to be baptized and how we baptize? In our church, in in our church specifically, we don't have any one single person in charge as our leader. We have bishops and we have the moderator. We have priests and we have Council and we have church committees, but in the end, in CSI, the church belongs to all of us. All of us are priests. Martin Luther calls it the priesthood of all believers. All of us have a responsibility for the ministry of the church and the proper functioning and life of the church. And this commitment we have as CSI can lead to conflict, it can lead to disagreements. At its best, this commitment that we're all We're all the priesthood of all believers means that everyone has ownership of the church. Everyone has a responsibility to participate and to serve, not to be consumers or spectators who just show up and leave. But at its worst, this can lead to politics in our church, right? This can lead to people arguing about rules and constitutions and legalism. I say that as a lawyer. Legalism is the death of any church, We need rules, but we have to always resist legalism. So, yes, we have to have rules about baptism. But in any discussion, the church must always show grace and humility, knowing that these gifts of God that we have received as a church are not our possession. They are God's possession. God owns grace, God owns baptism, God owns us. So, yes, we do need to have rules. But no, we can never be legalistic about those rules. And that applies to how we think and act with respect to baptism too. So in answer to the question, is church too caught up in the rules of baptism? There's always a threat that we will be be legalistic about the way we talk about God's sacraments. And we always have to resist that. Rules are good. Legalism is bad. Moving on to question number six. For baptism... Does adult baptism take on a different meaning than infant baptism? And if it's different, then why is it wrong to get re-baptized? This is a really good question because it's something that people could get confused on. There is only one baptism. This means that from God's standpoint, whether you are baptized at 2 or 20 or 75, your baptism means the same thing. It is the moment you are adopted into God's family. It is the moment he promises you repentance, forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit with the washing. It is the moment you enter the covenant community, which is the church. It is the moment you are united to Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So from God's standpoint, baptism is the same no matter what age you are. And in a sense, Every baptism is an infant baptism because no matter how old you are, you begin with nothing and you are given everything, not because you decided or chose and not because you are so worthy, but because God is gracious and loving and merciful. But from the standpoint of the church, infant baptism is followed by confirmation for the proper functioning of the church's life. So confirmation is where the church community says to you, we find you to be someone who has been faithful to your baptismal promises so far, we've tested you, and now we charge you to hold fast to these promises for the rest of your life. It's not the end of the story. Confirmation is not the end of the story, but it's a moment in the church's life where the church says to you, we believe you have been faithful so far, and now out of recognizing your faithfulness up to this point in your life, we invite you to be a member of the church and to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. It's like the same way you sit a baby in a high chair and don't let her eat with her older siblings at the table until she gets table manners. It's not proper order for the family for baby to be sitting in a normal chair with a knife and a spoon. You need to isolate her a little bit until she gets table manners. Even in the same sense, baptism tells you you're part of God's family, but we will only let you be at the table until we are confident that you will not be eating the supper unworthily. It's a precaution the church is taking. Because Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians, the supper is this beautiful, glorious thing, but it's also dangerous. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. If we eat it unworthily, we bring judgment upon ourselves. And some have even died for eating the Lord's supper unworthily. It's dangerous. It's good, but it's dangerous, like fire, right? Fire is a good thing, but it's also dangerous. So we wait until we are sure that the baptized children can eat it worthily before we invite them to the table and into the full life of the church. So that need to test for table manners, basically, for the proper functioning of the church is not necessary for those who are baptized as adults. That doesn't mean adults get something in baptism that infants don't get. It's one baptism. From God's standpoint, the promises and gifts given are exactly the same. But from the standpoint of the life of the church, in order to maintain good order, we have confirmation for those who are infant baptized. I hope that makes sense. Now, last thing on this question confirmation has echoes with what we find in Scripture. For example, after Pentecost in Acts chapter 8, the apostles have already received the Holy Spirit, but in Acts chapter 8, they're praising and giving thanks to God for his faithfulness to them so far, and then they experience a fresh indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and it's a powerful, encouraging experience to them. And in the same way, in confirmation, we praise and thank God for watching faithfully over those being confirmed, and then we pray that they experience a fresh indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So it has echoes with what we see in scripture, but confirmation is not a sacrament commanded to us by Jesus. And it's not a practice we see taught directly from scripture. It's a practice we see as in line with scripture, as harmonious with scripture. And we do it to provide proper functioning in the life of the community. Hope that distinction makes sense. Okay, now we'll go to question seven. What do you do with someone who is baptized twice twice and is open about it. You talk to them, you love them, they're your Christian brothers and sisters. I have friends and deeply loved ones who have been baptized twice and we've talked about it and I understand their deep conviction that they needed to be rebaptized, But that doesn't shake my confidence that it's unnecessary. I don't judge them or look down on them. I think they're wrong, but that doesn't give me any ground to be superior or condescending. We need to watch the way we talk about this topic with our friends and neighbors, Christians and non-Christians, because people will know that we are Christian by our love. So we need to be firm in our convictions and humble in the way we speak at the same time. We don't play with baptism because it belongs to God, but at the same time, it belongs to God, not us. So we don't have to feel threatened like we need to defend the teaching of one baptism in Ephesians chapter four, verse five, and affirmed in the Nicene Creed. God will defend baptism. We just need to witness and share from scripture why we believe rebaptism is incorrect and improper. And if you listening are someone who is rebaptized and now thinks that was a mistake, I probably shouldn't have done that. Don't beat yourself up. God is so gracious to us. It's improper. And that's why as a church, we don't do it based off of our reading of scripture, but things happen in life that make you believe this might be the right thing to do. And now you don't anymore. So confess that to God and he is good and faithful always. We don't judge you. God, I don't believe God is gonna hold that against you. It's, it's just something that happened. And if you're listening as someone who is rebaptized and you don't think that's a mistake, you think that it was the right thing to do please hear that we respect your decision even as we disagree with it for for reasons we believe come from the bible and if you want to talk about that more i would love to talk with you because again we believe the spirit is leading our church and the spirit will always lead us into the fullness of truth together so question eight if we believe baptism is what gives us entry to god's family then why not a stronger urgency to baptize as early as possible This question makes a good point. Why wait to baptize at all? And I agree. Theologically speaking, there's no problem and a lot of benefit to baptizing as early as possible. Now, remember, the CSI teaching on baptism, which we believe comes from Scripture, is that baptism is a gift of God, not a work of the church. Therefore, we have to try not to be legalistic about these things. So we should never try to force a family to baptize their, tr- their child before they want to. But for cultural and personal reasons, a lot of people want to wait to baptize, right? So I was baptized at the age of one and a half. And the reason why is my parents waited to bring my grandparents from India to America so that I could be baptized at the same time as my younger sister, who was a year younger than me they wanted us baptized at the same time for personal reasons and to have my grandparents there. And so that's why they waited. I think my brother was baptized closer to the age of two or three because my parents this time wanted to go to India to be with my grandparents because now they were kind of too old to travel. And that's why they waited that long for my brother to be baptized. So the question makes a good point. Uh, Why not just baptize as early as possible? There's no problem with baptizing as early as possible. As possible. But some people wait to baptize because they want a specific uchin or bishop or family member or close friend to be there. And so they wait for a time when that can happen. Theologically, there's no problem and there's a lot of good in baptizing as early as possible. But again, let's never be legalistic about these things. Baptism is an act of God. It's a gift of grace. So we should give freedom to families to baptize whenever they think their families and loved ones are available to celebrate with them and covenant together to watch over this child and disciple this child in the ways of God. So I hope that makes sense. Next question. What are the considerations for the child if it is not infant baptized? Basically, if a child is not infant baptized, that's usually because of the conviction of the parents, right, in the church. A baby can't say, I want to be baptized. A baby also can't say, I don't want to be baptized. It's up to the parents. So whenever the parents feel comfortable that the child should be baptized, that they believe the child is at an age where it's appropriate to baptize their child, they can request the and the baptism will happen at that time. In the meantime, the child will be fully included and discipled with all the other children in normal Sunday school and worship. So there's no exclusion happening at all. All that has happened is the parents want to delay the baptism. And whenever the parents ask for the baptism, it will happen. Final question. When Christ dies on the cross, he promises the thief that he will be with him in paradise. So the thief is saved at the end and he wasn't baptized. So why do we need baptism? We talked about this a little at the beginning of our conversation. So it's good to end here too. Jesus Christ is savior. He's Lord. He saves whoever he wants. The church bears his salvation and we witness to his salvation. So we're taught and we're promised that in our baptism into Jesus's death and resurrection, we are given Jesus's identity and mission We're promised forgiveness of sins. We're promised the Holy Spirit. And we stand firmly on those promises spoken to us in baptism. But none of that means that God cannot save outside those promises. He can. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 that with the baptism, we expect the Holy Spirit. That's in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is preaching to Gentiles, the Holy Spirit comes down on the Gentiles before any kind of baptism. And so we cannot restrict the Holy Spirit to, the, to baptism. The Holy Spirit goes wherever the Holy Spirit wants to go. We can never restrict God to our systems or our practices. We follow wherever God leads us. Christ promised the thief he will be in paradise, and the thief was not baptized, but we trust Christ's promise to save the thief. In the same way, baptism and discipleship is the regular order by which we proclaim and embody God's salvation, Baptism really does something. It's not just something we say. It's not just a symbol. It's an efficacious symbol. It's a means of grace. It's, it's, a, it's a symbol that promises us God's presence. Baptism is the way we receive God's blessing and his presence. And so we do it in accordance with Christ's commandments to, to us in scripture. But we must never think that that means that we have salvation under our control as the church, that we have it all figured out that only those we baptize in our church can be saved. No, salvation is by grace alone, received by faith alone. And God is gracious to save whoever he wants, however he wants. So those are all our questions. I'm sure in listening to them, you may have new questions. Feel free to continue the conversation with us. You can talk to me directly. You can also write to Joe Biotchen and I'm sure he'd love to answer your questions directly too. All right, guys, till next time.